You're listening to Metamodernism, a production of the Golden Age Collection, a 501c3 audiovisual archive based out of rainy San Francisco, California. It's late December, and 2023 is drawing to a close, which means it's time for Metamodernism to look back on all of the great music released this year. While some music publications declared that 2023 was the year of a shoegaze revival that broke through to Gen Z on TikTok, us aging millennial hipsters knew that the shoegaze revival has been ongoing for over two decades now. You just had to look in the right places. Kicking off this year's series, we have an artist who's been a key player in the shoegaze revival since the early 2000s. This is Sunny Boy by M83.
That was Sunny Boy by M83 from the album Fantasy, which was released this past March on Mute. Fantasy marked M83's ninth album, and their first since 2019's Digital Shades 2. M83's 80s-inspired digital shoegaze has long been a favorite of mine, with their breakthrough album Saturdays Equals Youth coming out at just the right time in high school for it to properly sink into my teenage brain. For me, those John Hughes-indebted soundscapes were reminiscent of a past that never existed, or as James Murphy would call it, borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered 80s. And whether James knew it or not, when he wrote that line in 2004, he correctly foresaw the underlying mechanism that would drive much of the popular indie music over the next decade plus. I'll be the first to admit that many of the artists I love do function off of borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered 80s. But like the track you just heard, the 80s style is just the starting point to create something new and emotive with modern instruments. And as Jean-Luc Godard once said, it's not where you take things from, it's where you take them to. And as the chapter closes on 2023, I think it's important to look back on what heights artists took their music to over this past year. This is my fourth year curating and producing these Best Music of the Year episodes, and if this is your first time joining me, welcome aboard. And if you've been listening along for the last three years, welcome back. I'm your host, Alexander Wool, and I'm looking forward to sharing all of the great music that I've discovered and enjoyed over the last year. Even though producing this series takes a considerable amount of time and effort, it's my pleasure to annually curate these sonic time capsules and offer you the gift of time compression. It took years for these artists to make this music, months for me to curate the final playlist, weeks to write and produce these episodes, and hours for you to consume them. In the preparation of this series, I've reviewed over 1,600 albums from artists all around the world, across a plethora of genres. Any music released in 2023 was eligible for inclusion in this year's list, including albums, EPs, singles, remixes, reissues, and even some long-lost music that has finally been unearthed after decades of searching. While this year's list will likely fluctuate a bit during the production of this series, I've curated a playlist of around 200 songs that I feel best represent the state of music in 2023, which will be released across roughly 12 loosely-themed episodes to ensure listenability at a higher bitrate. And if you're listening on AirPods, be sure to enable spatial audio by selecting spatialized stereo with head tracking for maximum sonic immersion. There are artists from 24 US states and 22 countries represented on this list, including the UK, France, Italy, Australia, New Zealand, Greece, Belgium, Finland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Japan, Iceland, Germany, Russia, Estonia, Indonesia, and Lebanon, just to name a few. Over a dozen new artists with debut albums or EPs are making the list this year, along with many great artists from years past, and a handful of unexpected reunions, comeback albums, and some surprises along the way. Every December, we are inundated with an onslaught of year-end best-of lists that fail to dive deep into the ocean of music that's being released each year. Comparing my list to other indie music publications like Pitchfork, Stereogum, Gorilla vs. Bear, Bandcamp, and Brooklyn Vegan, I only see a handful of choices overlap, so I feel a sense of responsibility to produce these episodes in an attempt to build awareness about noteworthy music that can often get overlooked in an era of peak media. The following 199 songs you'll hear on this podcast have never before been combined together and presented as a singular statement about the state of the art of music in 2023. This first episode is a sampler pack of the variety of genres you'll hear in the rest of the series, including indie rock, jangle pop, shoegaze, dream pop, baroque pop, psych pop, psych rock, post rock, folk, drum and bass, house, reggae, dub, library, exotica, jazz, classical, ambient, synthwave, and of course, vaporwave. With such a wide variety of genres being covered, I realize that not every song will resonate with everyone, so feel free to treat these episodes like an on-demand radio program, and don't be afraid to skip around if you're not vibing with the song. 
Last year's series totaled over 14 hours of music across 11 episodes, and this year is poised to be even longer than that, all of which completely ignores the statistics that short podcasts perform better due to people's shortening attention spans and the overabundance of podcast choices. But we're all adults who understand that podcasts are a user-controlled on-demand medium. You can pause and come back to these episodes at any time. This is a music marathon, not a music sprint. It's going to take a while for me to write and produce these episodes, so buckle up and settle in, because we're both in this together. And if you stick around to the end of the series, I'm sure you'll have discovered a handful of new artists to check out. But before we get back to the music, I want to talk a bit about 2023, because a lot happened this year that you may have missed, and I think it's worth talking about. And if you're just here for the music and don't care to hear my year-end recap, skip to the 32 minutes and 42 second mark to get to the next song intro. Attempting to sum up the meaning of a year in a clever and pithy way can be a fool's errand, but I think it's important to reflect back on the year that was 2023 in an attempt to gain some sort of greater insight into the world around us. Much could be said about the ongoing wars overseas, continuing outbreaks of COVID-19, and the concerning data we receive about the damage mankind has wrought on this planet. But I'll leave that to other news organizations. On metamodernism, I focus on the state of the media landscape, including music, film, television, comedy, podcasts, books, technology, the key players and moves within the industry, and what it all means for the future of how we consume and engage with our favorite media. And 2023 was a notable year in many respects, with both writers and actors unions striking together for the first time since 1988, bringing the entire industry to a halt for nearly five months. The specifics discussed on the table between both sides were complex and nuanced, and I don't have nearly enough time to get into all the specifics here, but one of the key sticking points involved the ability for studios to digitally scan an actor's resemblance and then use it in perpetuity on any future project in any way, shape, or form without paying any royalties to the actor or their families, even after death. If this all sounds rather dystopian, but somehow familiar, it's because the film The Congress tackled the same subject a decade ago. Back then, it was dystopian science fiction warning us about the future. And now here we are, in the future, with studios attempting to utilize innovative technology to exploit actors whose work is the bedrock of their institutions. If studios want to save money, fine. But the problem comes when they'll pinch pennies at the bottom while refusing to trim the fat at the top. I understand that hiring hundreds of extras at union rates for weeks or months of filming can be a costly endeavor, and movies these days are already so expensive to produce. So since the studios were pushing so hard during the strike to normalize the practice of hiring actors for just one day, digitally scanning them, and then keeping their likeness on a hard drive to be digitally copied and used in any upcoming project until the end of time without their permission or paying any extra royalties the actors or families, I say let them do it, because then we can turn around and apply that same logic to the purchase and distribution of their movies. Why should my friends and I each buy copies of their films when just one of us can purchase a movie on Blu-ray, rip it, and then indiscriminately distribute digital copies of the movie in perpetuity, paying no licensing fees or royalties to the studios? So thanks for the idea, Zaslav. I'm off to buy one copy of Barbie on Blu-ray and then gift hundreds of digital copies to everyone I know. You already made a billion dollars from it. What would you even do with the chump change that Warner Brothers Discovery would make if my circle of friends suddenly were to buy Barbie on Blu-ray? Would it even cover one hour of legal fees for the attorneys that you would retain to fight against paying your writers and actors during the strikes? And for the record, I actually thoroughly enjoyed Barbie. I saw it in a Dolby cinema, which supports the bright, vibrant colors of Dolby Vision that you'd like to see on a big screen, and had impressive multi-dimensional sound supported by Dolby Atmos. Heading into it, I was already a big fan of both Greta Gerwig's and Noah Baumbach's films. My inaugural guest on Metamodernism, Chris Eigeman, had starred in Noah's first three films in the 90s, Kicking and Screaming, Mr. Jealousy, and Highball, all of which are well worth your time. 
Check out that episode if you want to hear Chris talk about meeting Noah for the first time and making his debut with the first three Whit Stillman films, which are also essential viewing. But with Barbie, we learned that an indie auteur power couple, when given a popular piece of IP and the big budget of a major studio, can still craft an original and insightful story that, if in different hands, very easily could have been colorful corporate schlock. Instead, the film was a hit with both audiences and critics alike, and wound up earning over a billion dollars at the box office, making Greta Gerwig the highest grossing female director of all time, while simultaneously having the undesirable side effect of giving Zaslav the satisfaction of his first runaway hit. And he would have had two if Warner Brothers hadn't squandered their relationship with Christopher Nolan. Oppenheimer could have been made with Warner Brothers, just like all previous Chris Nolan films since 2002. But Nolan opted to make Oppenheimer with Universal due to Warner Brothers' 2021 decision to force filmmakers into the hybrid release model of their films, launching in both theaters and on HBO Max the same day. Nolan said at the time, quote, Some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed the night before thinking that they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find out that they were working for the worst streaming service, end quote. In previous episodes, I've publicly aired my grievances against David Zaslav, who is currently the chief exploitation officer of Warner Brothers Discovery. Last year, the New York Times reported on his salary, quote, His pay was closely tied to Warner Brothers Discovery's share price. His 2021 total compensation was a staggering $246.6 million. But as the stock crashed in 2022, so did Zaslav's compensation, falling to $39.3 million, end quote. Amidst the writers' and actors' strikes, Adam Conover remarked that Zaslav's 2021 compensation was the equivalent cost of pay for 10,000 striking writers. If his atrocious decisions to shelve and remove Warner Brothers' IP from its own streaming service in 2022 didn't clue you into what a Philistine he is, in 2023 it became abundantly clear that Zaslav took the helm of Warner Brothers' discovery with a singular goal in mind, to make money by cutting costs wherever possible, with complete disregard to the art of film and television and those who create it, even if it means dismantling a legendary studio from within. If things keep going the way they are, his decisions may become a management case study on how to run a legendary studio to the ground. And while I don't have nearly enough time to explain all of the reasons why you too should be upset with this very powerful man in Hollywood, it's time once again to razz the zazz with a rundown of all the awful things he's been up to this year. Late in 2022 and throughout 2023, he continued his purge of content, removing dozens of Warner Brothers' own films and television shows from HBO Max. From Westworld to Sesame Street, Vinyl, Ming, Mrs. Fletcher, Close Enough, and over a hundred more titles were all suddenly removed from HBO Max, many of them unavailable anywhere else. Warner Brothers Discovery ended up striking a deal with rival streaming services to license their content elsewhere, but only as a source of additional revenue at the cost of the user experience. Streaming services promised the unification of the media landscape, where content from different studios could live together harmoniously on one service. Not only have studios splintered the Netflix model by siphoning content away from Netflix into their own streaming services, but now they've begun to purge themselves of their content, both third-party media and, more concerning, self-produced streaming exclusives. Unfortunately, Zaslav's penchant for the erasure of media has spread like a virus across the industry. Paramount+, Disney+, Hulu, and Showtime have all begun purging content from their services, following Warner Brothers Discovery's lead to avoid paying royalties to the creators of films and television shows on their services. 
Shout out to Tony Hale for his well-deserved Emmy win on The Mysterious Benedict Society. Ironically enough, his Emmy win for his work on season two came six months after Disney unceremoniously scrubbed the show from existence by canceling it, removing it from Disney+, and refusing to release it on physical media, effectively locking it away in the notorious Disney vault. Co-star Kristen Schaal took to Twitter upon news of the removal, requesting a copy of the show so she could one day watch it with her daughter. Disney's erasure of their own shows is so cold they don't even give warnings or copies of their shows to their own creators. And then the Mysterious Benedict Society gets nominated for nine children's Emmys, and Tony Hale wins for outstanding lead performance in a children's program. Oh, to be in the room to see the egg on Iger's face when he heard the news. Meanwhile, all of this media erasure is happening at the same time that Best Buy has announced that it will stop selling physical media in 2024, leading to a potential gap in content accessibility. Taken as a whole, all of this news sounds pretty bleak. But fear not, my friends. Any deleted streaming exclusives worth watching have been digitally preserved in the Golden Age collection, safe from the prying hands of penny-pinching studio execs. In February, Zaslav stated on an earnings call that his plans were, quote, working, even though Warner Brothers Discovery had lost $2.1 billion in Q4 of 2022. And as of the writing of this podcast, their stock is down 52% from their peak price at launch in April of 2022. In May of 2023, Warner Brothers celebrated its 100th anniversary, but one month prior, it was reported that Warner Brothers, likely at the command of Zaslav, was throwing away thousands of movie posters and press kits going back to the 1950s. Destroying priceless artifacts from the golden age of film seems like a strange way to celebrate the 100th anniversary of a studio. And while we're on the topic of destroying history, Warner Brothers brokered a deal a few years ago to sell their 32-acre backlot to be demolished and have new offices built and leased back to them. In October of 2023, demolition began. The backlot's history stretches back to 1934 and contained the sets for old television shows like Father Knows Best, Dennis the Menace, Batman, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, The Waltons, The Partridge Family, and The Donna Reed Show. It's also the location used as the Griswold family home in Christmas Vacation and the iconic fountain in the opening credits of Friends. It's as though Zaslav is going out of his way to destroy the studio's history from within. In May, when Zaslav was giving a commencement address at his alma mater, Boston University, his speech was in interrupted by hundreds of students chanting, pay your writers, for the entire duration of his speech. Later in May, HBO Max and Discovery Plus merge into a single streaming service, dropping the name HBO and simply calling it Max. The merge combined HBO's expansive prestige library with Discovery's low-effort reality content like Naked and Afraid and Dr. Pimple Popper, Adding insult to injury, the launch was riddled with numerous technical issues from login errors, crashes, missing content, and lots of metadata errors. Instead of crediting a film's writer and director, the new Max metadata lumped them all together under the category of creators, which they only changed back after a substantial outrage from the filmmaking community. In June, Variety reported that Warner Brothers Discovery is hoping to secure about $500 million by selling off the rights to slightly less than half of its movie, TV, and music catalog to a record label, which again is a very odd way to celebrate the company's 100th anniversary. Later in June, Warner Brothers Discovery announced that they would be laying off workers starting with the staff of Turner Classic Movies, effectively gutting their programming staff from 40 to around 20. TCM is a well-respected institution within the filmmaking community, so the news came as a shock to many, including several notable directors. Due to the outrage within the industry, Zaslav agreed to keep TCM's vice president of programming, Charles Tabish. Additionally, Steven Spielberg, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Martin Scorsese, all of whom have long championed the channel, offered to curate movies for 
the channel, presumably pro bono, out of a love for cinema and a desire for the next generation to have access to older films not readily available on streaming services. Back in May, The Hollywood Reporter quoted Zaslav as saying, quote, We have lost a lot of money in the motion picture business, and making that turn is important. DC is going to be a very big growth driver for this company. We are very bullish on DC, end quote. However, all DC movies released in 2023 were substantial critical and box office bombs. Shazam 2 barely made back its $125 million budget, but lost Warner Brothers Discovery money due to its oversized marketing budget. The Flash had an estimated budget of around $200 to $220 million and performed miserably at the U.S. box office, but made $270 million internationally. However, Collider reported that the marketing budget was at least $65 million, meaning The Flash would need to make an estimated $265 million to $400 million at the global box office to just break even. The film might end up losing the studio over $200 million because the revenue is split between the studio and the movie theaters. Another DC movie, Blue Beetle, was released in August and was also a box office bomb, making $129 million off of an estimated $105 to $120 million budget, which again lost Warner Brothers Discovery money due to the oversized marketing budget. Blue Beetle is now the lowest grossing movie in the DC Extended Universe. And finally, a few weeks ago, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom bombed at the box office with a budget of $205 million. Including 2022's Black Adam, that makes five box office bombs in a row for Warner Brothers Discovery's DC Extended Universe. All of these bombs have caused Warner Brothers Discovery to end their current DC Extended Universe and hand over the reins to James Gunn to reboot the entire thing. At the same time, Disney's The Marvels became Marvel's lowest grossing movie of all time earning $205.6 million worldwide, falling short of its reported break-even point of $439.6 million, while reportedly necessitating a $700 million return to become profitable. And if you've listened to Metamodernism before, you know how much I dislike these cookie-cutter comic book movies that both Warner Brothers Discovery and Disney insist on cranking out every few months. So you're probably wondering why I'm spending so much time covering a topic I so deeply dislike. The answer is schadenfreude, pure and simple. The fact that audiences are finally fed up with formulaic and unoriginal comic book movies is music to my ears. I'm hopeful that both Iger and Zaslav are getting the message to start making original movies again. But with the recent success of the Wonka remake, I have a feeling that the era of superhero movies, sequels, reboots, and remakes will continue to plague the back half of the 2020s, diverting precious studio money away from the mid-range budget movies that in the past have been more original and capable of taking bigger artistic swings. But with the critical and box office success of films like The Holdovers, is it too early to say that the mid-range film may make a comeback in 2024? If Paul Giamatti finally gets his Oscar for his excellent performance in Alexander Payne's new Christmas classic, I think we might see an uptick in the kinds of movies that we used to see. In November, The Verge reported that Max had lost over 700,000 subscribers. Zaslav blamed the loss on Warner Brothers having, quote, the lightest original content in years, end quote. But he made that bed. Now he gets to sleep in it. And capping off a year of bad decisions for Warner Brothers Discovery, in November, news broke that Warner Brothers Discovery would be shelving their third unreleased movie. The shelved film, Coyote vs. Acme, is a live-action animation hybrid based on a New Yorker piece of the same name, which follows Wiley Coyote as he sues the Acme Corporation for all of their faulty products that he had ordered over the years. The movie, which stars John Cena and Will Forte, cost Warner Brothers Discovery $72 million and was completed in 2022. It was expected to be released theatrically this July, but when it disappeared from the release schedule, people became concerned. Then in November, the announcement was made that the fully completed film would be shelved and used as a $30 million tax write-off. 
When the news broke, the internet went berserk, and as a result of the considerable backlash, Warner Brothers Discovery announced that they'd be screening the movie to prospective buyers. Amazon, Apple, Sony, Netflix, and Paramount have all seen the film, with Paramount leading the pack to purchase the rights to the movie, but it appears as though negotiations have stalled, as it was reported that Warner Brothers Discovery wanted over $70 million to net a profit from the film. Even though Zaslav had a change of heart and has allowed Coyote vs. Acme to be screened and sold, his unethical business strategies have set off alarm bells in Washington. Deadline reports that Senator Elizabeth Warren, Representative Joaquin Castro, Representative David Cicilline, and Representative Pramila Jayapal wrote in a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland and Department of Justice Antitrust Chief Jonathan Cantor that the Warner Brothers Discovery merger appears to have enabled the company to adopt potentially anti-competitive practices that reduce consumer choice and harm workers in affected labor markets. Later, Joaquin Castro wrote on X, quote, The Warner Brothers Discovery tactic of scrapping fully made films for tax breaks is predatory and anti-competitive. As the Justice Department and the FTC revise their antitrust guidelines, they should review this conduct. And as someone remarked, it's like burning down a building for the insurance money, end quote. Like others on the internet, I'm of the belief that any film shelved by a studio as a tax write-off should immediately enter the public domain and be available for free to all taxpaying citizens. And late breaking news came at the end of the year as it was announced that Zaslav had preliminary meetings with Paramount CEO Bob Backish about a potential merger between Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount. Once upon a time, the DOJ might have stepped in to prevent such a merger, but we've consistently been seeing these massive media mergers pass with little to no scrutiny, so 2024 might be a wild ride for media companies. When I started producing these Best Music of the Year episodes in 2020, I had assumed that the metamodern podcast landscape meant that there were too many voices in music journalism for mine to gain any traction. But year after year, I've steadily been finding new listeners. Metrics from Apple Podcasts and Spotify have been surprising, with metamodernism reaching listeners across the world. For those of you listening in Canada, the UK, Australia, Japan, Germany, Switzerland, Sweden, Bulgaria, and Costa Rica, thanks for somehow stumbling onto metamodernism. Metamodernism is a one-man operation, and outside of sparse social media posts, I do little self-promotion for the podcast, so growth comes from word of mouth. If you like what you hear, be sure and tell a friend or two about the podcast and make Maybe they'll find some new music to check out as well. Leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify helps push metamodernism into the almighty algorithm for new listeners to discover the podcast. More listeners to the podcast means more exposure for artists deserving more attention. I produce this series as a spotlight to shine on all of the great artists producing interesting music in 2023. The remaining Best Music of 2023 episodes will trickle out over the next few weeks, possibly months. So be sure to follow or subscribe to Metamodernism to get the latest episodes as they come out. It's no secret that streaming services like Spotify keep the lion's share of profit and pay artists breadcrumbs, so it's important to remember that music is a form of participatory culture. In order for great artists to keep making music, listeners need to engage with the music they love by actually purchasing albums rather than streaming, supporting live music, or picking up artist merch. If you like the music you hear on this podcast, links to purchase all of the songs will be included in the show notes. We need to talk about Bandcamp. It has not been a great few years for the indie music distributor, and it's emblematic of the issues plaguing the media industry as a whole. I've talked about Bandcamp a lot over the last few years, but for those of you just joining us, Bandcamp was founded in 2007 as an online independent music platform where users could download DRM-free files in a variety of formats using a pay-what-you-want business model that took hold after the innovative release of Radiohead's In Rainbows. Bandcamp has been ground zero for countless musical revolutions, from Chillwave in the summer of 09 to the lo-fi surf craze that same year into 2010, followed by the rise of Vaporwave in 2011 and 2012. They managed to set themselves apart
apart from other online music distribution platforms with a strong journalistic voice and larger profit sharing for artists. However, in March of 2022, the independent company was sold to Epic Games, the makers of Fortnite. In a blog post about the acquisition, Epic Games explained that Bandcamp will, quote, play an important role in Epic's vision to build out a creator marketplace ecosystem for content, technology, games, art, music, and more. Epic and Bandcamp will work together behind the scenes to push development of merchandising and payment options, mobile apps, and live streaming, among other features, end quote. Upon hearing the news last year, I was concerned about the future of Bandcamp, which had become one of the last bastions of truly independent media. Within the umbrella of Epic Games, would Bandcamp become just another casualty of corporate media mergers? In March of 2023, we got our first clue that not all was well within the company, as Bandcamp employees needed to rally together to form a union called Bandcamp United. In a report by the Rolling Stone, Jared Andrews, a mobile app developer, said, quote, When we were acquired by Epic, new employment contracts were given to us, and we were given a limited amount of time to sign them and no room for negotiation. This was not fair, and it was not transparent. Bandcamp as a marketplace is known for valuing fairness and transparency with regard to how the artists who use our website are compensated. These same values should be reflected in the workplace where Bandcamp is built, end quote. In a joint statement, Bandcamp United wrote, quote, Many of us ourselves are independent artists, label owners, and promoters, and all of us are fans who are involved in our own local music communities. We began working here as an extension of our own love for independent music and believe that a site such as Bandcamp that purports to offer an ethical and fair alternative to the streaming economy should reflect its mission internally, end quote. In September of 2023, a mere 18 months into ownership, Epic Games sold Bandcamp to SongTrader, a music licensing and marketing company. The sale appeared to be triggered by Epic Games feeling the financial heat after facing a $520 million fine from the FTC for violating the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which broke the record for the largest penalty ever obtained for violating an FTC rule. As a result, Epic Games laid off 16% of their own staff, and after the acquisition, SongTrader promptly laid off 50% of Bandcamp staff. SFGate reported, quote, the job cuts amounted to about 60 out of 118 employees, disproportionately hitting union leaders. Every member of the union's eight-person bargaining team was laid off, and 40 of the bargaining unit's 67 people lost their jobs. Bandcamp's editorial team, responsible for the independent and small artist-focused Bandcamp Daily, has been cut in half. 12 out of the 13 union-eligible support staff are out as well, plus 70% of the vinyl team. Bandcamp's vinyl pressing service lets artists run pledge campaigns to test out their market for potential vinyl releases. Atusa Moinzade, an editorial staffer who's laid off, said, quote, It feels as though many of the aspects that make Bandcamp human that make it a balm in the algorithm and profit-driven music industry have been gutted through these layoffs, end quote. Since the layoffs in the fall, there's been no updates as to the current status of the company, but things aren't looking great for Bandcamp. SongTrader as a company doesn't seem to have the same approach to music as Bandcamp does, treating it more like a money-making commodity with little to no interest in its artistic merit. Bandcamp has long been my go-to source for innovative indie music not found on other platforms, and with the fate of the online indie community seemingly hanging in the balance, I wish Bandcamp the best heading into an uncertain 2024. While browsing Bandcamp this fall, I came across a new artist producing perhaps the most original experimental electronic music I've heard since avant-garde electronic producer Curtis Rhodes. Her website reads, quote, Carmen Jackie is a French-Canadian experimental music producer currently based in the Netherlands. Using hybrid sounds that merge acoustic instruments with synthesizers and vocal recordings, she constructs a sound world where electronic and classical music overlap, end quote. In March, Carmen Jackie released her debut album, Happy Child. Her Bandcamp reads, quote, Happy Child is a record about exploration, play, and rekindling with a sense of childlike wonder. 
Carmen's introspective approach reels us in to a surprising and surreal and sometimes theatrical universe where the intimate meets the eccentric. Sounds of mallet percussion and children's toys abound, as well as references to pop music, video games, and symphonic works. These sounds appear within loop-based tracks that alternate with organic and abstract compositional forms." End quote. Upon hearing the record, I was blown away by her boundary-pushing production style. The music felt like Carmen was tapping into a new way of expressing the side effects of our digital age, and after reading an interview she gave with Foxy Digits, it all made sense. She said, quote, My attention span is quite short, and when it comes to attentively listening to music, I need to be stimulated with novelty at a fast pace in order to prevent boredom. The right balance between repetition and newness in a track sits differently for everyone, and I think that in my case, it leans much more towards the latter than the average listener. This overly developmental quality manifests itself most predominantly in my composition's mezzo level, where, as seconds pass, we hear whole musical entities being constantly reconfigured and or mutated within the electronic arrangement, end quote. I'm aware that the following track will be somewhat polarizing among a percentage of my audience, but I encourage you to broaden your horizons and stick around for the entire duration, because I guarantee you've never heard anything like it before. While there are musical elements to her compositions, her work is perhaps more aptly categorized as a collage of sonic art that has something to say about our shortening attention spans in the digital age and the need for rest. The track shares a title with Maurice Ravel's 1901 solo piano composition, which may give some context to the intention behind this electronic composition. The piece will have maximum effect if you close your eyes, so put on a good pair of headphones and be open to whatever the next four and a half minutes have in store for your ears. This is Jadou by Carmen Jackie.
That was Jadu by Carmen Jackie from the album Happy Child. From music that sounds like the future, now we take a step back in time to the kind of rich pastoral Baroque music you might have heard in the 1500s. In my Best Music of 2022 series, I featured Rachel LeBlanc's psych pop project Vanille from Montreal, Quebec. From her label, quote, February 2023 marks a real leap in maturity and integrity for Vanille as she releases La Clairière, her second album. Oscillating between 60s-inspired folk and French songs, the artist's turn plunges the listener into a dreamlike world bordered by dense forests and romantic dramas, end quote. La Clairière is just over 30 minutes of placid psych folk music that seems to belong to a lost era. Perhaps my favorite track from the album is The Opener, which is a gorgeous but criminally short Baroque pop track containing 12-string guitars, flutes, and a harpsichord. This is Hop Hop by Vanille. by Vanille from La Clairière. Long before Vanille hit the scene, an indie artist from Michigan was crafting Baroque arrangements for his self-produced recordings. Sufjan Stevens is one of my favorite musicians, with an unwavering ability to craft delicate songs that flourish into lush sonic maximalism. Leading up to the release of his new album, Javelin, he announced that he would not be touring nor participating in the typical album press cycle due to being hospitalized with a rare and serious autoimmune disease, Guillain-Barré syndrome. In a blog post, he explained, quote, Last month I woke up one morning and couldn't walk. My hands, arms, and legs were numb and tingling, and I had no strength, no feeling, no mobility. My brother drove me to the ER, and after a series of tests, MRIs, EMGs, CAT scans, X-rays, spinal taps, echocardiograms, etc., the neurologist diagnosed me with an autoimmune disorder called Guillain-Barré syndrome. On September 8th, I was transferred to acute rehab, where I am now undergoing intensive physical therapy, occupational therapy, strength building, etc., to get my body back in shape and learn to walk again. I'm committed to getting better. I'm in good spirits, and I'm surrounded by a really great team. I want to be well, end quote. As if this news wasn't sad enough, when he announced the album's release in October, Sufjan accompanied the release with a statement, which I'll read in full. Quote, This album is dedicated to the light of my life, my beloved partner and best friend Evans Richardson, who passed away in April. 
He was an absolute gem of a person, full of life, love, laughter, curiosity, integrity, and joy. He was one of those rare and beautiful ones you find only once in a lifetime. Precious, impeccable, and absolutely exceptional in every way. I know relationships can be very difficult sometimes, but it's always worth it to put in the hard work and care for the ones you love, especially the beautiful ones who are few and far between. If you happen to find that kind of love, hold it close, hold it tight, savor it, tend to it, and give it everything you've got especially in times of trouble. Be kind, be strong, be patient, be forgiving, be vigorous, be wise, and be yourself. Live every day as if it is your last, with fullness and grace, with reverence and love, with gratitude and joy. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you. I love you. End quote. Upon the release of this statement, people took to the internet to give the reactions, but perhaps no one summed it up as succinctly as Twitter user at Funko underscore WAP, who wrote, quote, Sufjan Stevens really answered the years-old gay or Christian debate with the most beautiful and heartbreaking both of all time, end quote. Compared to his last solo full-length 2020's The Ascension, Javelin felt like a return to form, incorporating the sounds and textures from throughout his past discography into an album that feels both familiar and groundbreaking. There were several standout tracks, but for me, this next track is perhaps the best encapsulation of the heights that his songs can reach. Knowing the difficult backstory behind the album makes the strain in Sufjan's aging voice all the more somber, but the track's progression into expansive instrumentation accompanied by a children's choir gives hope in a dark situation and showcases Sufjan's unparalleled talent as a producer. This is Shit Talk by Sufjan Stevens. I failed to live 
That was Shit Talk by Sufjan Stevens from the album Javelin. Lazy, spelled L-A-Y-Z-I, is a lo-fi indie bedroom pop musician based out of Boston. After releasing her debut album, Be Mine, in 2021, later that year she followed it up with her first EP for Spirit Goth, What's Left to Lose. Lazy only released two songs in 2023, but they're both great. This next track is a bit of a departure for Lazy, and it sees her experimenting with smooth drum and bass sounds within the format of a pop song. This is IDK by Lazy. IDK by Lazy. Since 2015, Delaware's Echosoft has been making hazy synthwave and chill synth music. This past January, Echosoft released their debut full-length album, Weight of Your Own, which saw the up-and-coming producer working alongside hotel pools to push their sound into a more organic territory by adding in real instruments. Explaining the album, Echosoft wrote on their Bandcamp, quote, I began writing this album in early 2021 with the goal of pushing my ideas and creative boundaries. It represents a very transitional time in my life, and it is different than anything I've ever written before, end quote. Up next is one of my favorite tracks from Weight of Your Own, which expertly blends synths and guitar into a sleek sound. This is Shoulders by Echosoft. (laughs) 
Echosoft from the album Weight of Your Own. Back in 2011, mysterious artist Youth Lagoon broke onto the scene with her captivating debut album, The Year of Hibernation. As it turns out, Youth Lagoon was the moniker of Idaho-based Trevor Powers, who had recently dropped out of Boise State University and quit his job at Urban Outfitters to focus on Youth Lagoon full-time. The debut album was filled with a sense of dreamlike wonder, and its release was perfectly timed, as at the time, I was fervently seeking out the next big thing for my college radio program. I still cherish the Vincent Moon-esque recording I took of their 2011 performance at Pygmalion Music Festival to a room of maybe 25 people. Trevor would release two more albums as Youth Lagoon, 2013's Wondrous Bug House and 2015's Savage Hills Ballroom. His Bandcamp explains what happened next. Quote, In 2016, Trevor Powers shut the door on Youth Lagoon. He said, quote, I felt like I was in a chokehold. Even though it was my music, I felt lost in a way, in a lot of ways. I lost myself, end quote. Stepping back from the alias, Powers found personal transformation at his home in Idaho and released experimental tapes under his own name, 2018's Mulberry Violence and 2020's Capricorn. Powers said, quote, My mind has always been a devil. It tells me terrible things, like I'm worthless, ugly, or broken. It's like a motel TV stuck on a channel that won't shut off, with static and endless late-night ads and preachers screaming about the end of the world, end quote. In October of 2021, something changed the channel. After taking an over-the-counter medication, Powers had a drug reaction so severe it turned his stomach into a non-stop geyser of acid, coating his larynx and vocal cords for eight months. I saw seven doctors and multiple specialists. I lost over 30 pounds. No one could help me, he said. By Christmas, he could no longer speak, turning to text messages and a pen and paper as his only ways to communicate. Quote, I wasn't sure if I'd ever be able to speak again, yet alone sing. It all felt symbolic in a way. I'd been swallowing fear all of my life, and now here it was coming back up. I used to think God watches people suffer. Now I know that God suffers with you. That changed everything. End quote. The growth that followed that nightmare narrowed Powers' focus as he wrote his next album, Heaven is a Junkyard. He said, quote, The album is about all of us. It's stories of brothers leaving for war, drunk fathers learning to hug, mothers falling in love, neighbors stealing mail, cowboys doing drugs, friends skipping school, me crying in the bathtub, and children playing in tall grass, end quote. Heaven is a Junkyard is a phrase he wrote down in his journal after watching a neighbor's farmhouse catch fire. He said, quote, I wasn't even sure what those words meant at the time. I'm not sure I still do, end quote. The delicate music on Have It As A Junkyard contains Trevor's most personal lyrics to date, and this next track demonstrates that there is strength in weakness. This is Trapeze Artist by Youth Lagoon. Believe me, 
drink by the water Fear is my only daughter And ever since she was born She's had freezing skin But her eyes are warm And her heart is spilling Pale white, sick and thin The drugstore killing My voice is gone And it used to be so strong The reaper's ready for the harvest and fear is where my broken heart is In a circus tent all grown up and gone She's climbing the ladder God save the trapeze artist Trapeze Artist by Youth Lagoon from the album Heaven is a Junkyard. In my Best Music of 2022 series, I featured Barry, the indie pop project of New York musician Barry Lindsay, for her album Barbara. In 2023, the remaining five tracks from the Barbara sessions were compiled onto a new EP called 5K, released in March on Windspear Records. From Windspear, quote, An avid runner, Barry named the EP 5K after the common foot race. She explains, quote, The music felt like a good arc for running. I want this music to be good company, steady and light enough. It's literal and it's metaphorical. This EP is meant to be your running partner for whatever form of 5K you're doing, end quote. This next song showcases Barry's ability to fit glitchy electronic textures within a pop song. This is Empty by Barry. Over it, every pothole and never 
was Empty by Barry from the 5K EP. In a resurrection of a decade-old hipster trend of having an ungoogleable band name, Belgium band Portland released their new album Departures in March on Pious Records. What little information I could find about the band is present here in a statement from their label. Quote, Portland is a project born of instant connection, yet it is also one that has survived some of the darkest that life can throw at them. Dreamy songwriting bathed in beauty, the Belgian two-piece thrive on pure expression, infusing their beatific ethereal work with incredible honesty. Their new album Departures pushes them to the brink, forcing them to open up as never before, and in the process, discover themselves all over again." End quote. Up next is my favorite cut from Departures. This is Allison by Portland. Sliding up the morning sun 
Allison by Portland from the album Departures. For the fourth year running, Washington, D.C. producer Eric Hilton makes another appearance on my Best Music of the Year series. As one half of Thievery Corporation, his resume boasts over two decades worth of the gold standard for globally-minded down-tempo electronica. In recent years, he's branched out as a solo artist, and a prolific one at that, releasing five albums over the last three years. His ability to consistently craft spacious and lush down-tempo music is unrivaled. In September, his fifth album, Corazon Kintsugi, was released on Montserrat House, which saw Eric working alongside singer Natalia Clavier. From Bandcamp, quote, Hilton and Clavier's musical relationship dates back to 2008, when he produced her debut album Nectar for 18th Street Lounge Music. The Argentinian singer-songwriter was subsequently invited to be a part of Thievery Corporation's live act and sang in their stunning 2014 album Sade. Clavier refers to Hilton as her biggest musical mentor, while Hilton calls Natalia a muse on steroids. Hilton said, quote, I had quite a few fragments of songs that I felt would work better with a vocalist than as solo pieces, and Natalia created that outlet for me. It was a great break artistically to work with a singer and songs instead of instrumentals. I had a very heavy hand in this record, but she trusted me and brought so many ideas. There were no creative battles at all. Natalia and I have mutual respect and that's why it worked, end quote. Claviar said, quote, Eric and I speak the same language. I asked him, how do you feel about me singing in Spanish and maybe Portuguese? And he was so enthusiastic. He gives me creative freedom, which allows me to be totally open, end quote. Hilton produced, arranged, and played the majority of the instruments on Corazon Katsugi. The nine-track album delivers a musical concoction that Hilton has uniquely mastered. Ingredients of dub, trip-hop, bossa nova, vintage continental European film music, and sparkling electronica blended with sophistication and ease, end quote. Closing out this first chapter, this is Corazon Katsugi by Eric Hilton featuring Natalia Clavier. Oh 
cara hacia el centro Me reconecto Se ilumina todo Construir 